This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Territory Foods. Yeah, speaking of which, Lisa and Juliet are pointing out that I have territory stuck in my teeth right now. Thanks, guys. And I'm like, they're not being very helpful around this. Look, this season <laughs> is about uh, where are they now? And I'll tell you, um, this episode happens to be about John Wellborn and uh, his early, his experience with CrossFit. Of course, uh his CrossFit football, but one of the things that John was always advocating for, for the development of young kids in sports is eating whole foods. And what he would say is you got to eat whole foods, you got to make it and you got to eat a lot of it. And plus milk, if you can, if you can take it and there, it's a perfect tie in to why we are such fans of this company, because you've got to be whole food based. That is the future. And here's the deal. It doesn't matter whether you're keto, paleo, pagan, whole 30. Pagan. That's a thing. That's actually a thing. Oh, that's right. That's what do we call that? That's a new thing. It's vegan plus paleo. Oh, right. Anyway, it doesn't matter which one of these dietary mechanisms you're following. Can you be paleo? Territory Foods has meals for you. Keto, pagan, vegan. Wait, what? Is that even a thing? That's like crossing the streams. Look, um, you know you're going to enjoy this episode. Um, just as a reminder, um, sometimes it's difficult to hold all the pieces together when it comes to trying to have an organized life and eat a decent lunch or decent breakfast. Use territory to fill in the gaps. If you want to receive $25 off your first two orders, go to www.territoryfoods.com slash yum slash the ready state. Make your life easier with territory foods. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! John Wellborn is CEO of Power Athlete and Fuse Move, as well as the creator of the online training phenomena, Johnny Wad. He's a nine-year veteran of the NFL and was a starter for the Philadelphia Eagles from 1999 to 2003 the Kansas City Chiefs from 2004 to 2007, and appeared in three NFC championship games. In 2008, he played with the New England Patriots until an injury ended his season early, with him retiring in 2009. Over the course of his career, John has started over 100 games and has had 10 playoff appearances. After retiring from the NFL, John got involved with CrossFit and eventually developed the CrossFit football program, but we'll let him explain how that all went down. John has worked with Major League Baseball, the NFL, NHL, Olympic athletes, as well as the military, and he currently travels the world lecturing on performance and nutrition for Power Athlete. John Wellborn, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thank you for having me. Johnny, we were just having a talk uh, about your kids and our kids and the funny world that they grow up in. And, you know, this is something that, I mean, you had Romanoff at your house when your kids were just like newborns, I think they were yeah. still being nursed by Kate and you were already setting up mazes and balanced games and things for them. Do you think that... That the, doesn't sound creepy at all. No, 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 I'm not trying to sound creepy. It just sounds, well, obsessive, which is exactly what it's right. And um, But one of the things that you have done an incredible job of is create this amazing community uh, at out at your uh, ranch in Texas every year, tell us about sort of the power athlete get together because I think the context of this or the reference of this is that your kids are exposed to a lot of very interesting people. Will you tell us about how that thing started out in this little soiree you get because it's pretty rad. Yeah, I mean we uh, we do a ton of 
different things. I mean, um, boy, just this last year we do our, obviously our block one. So big thing we do here at power athlete is educate coaches. And, uh, I mean, uh, this morning today, I was just up at, uh, Fort hood, uh, basically observing and doing some stuff with the guys from TSAC, you know, uh, TSAC, which is associated with the NSCA, uh, they reached out to us and, uh, we've been, you know, working with them a little bit in terms of like programming. And I know they're going through a kind of a redesign and wanted our kind of take on not only how to make a more engaging course, but, you know, like what we could add to it and how we can help them. And, you know, they've been really good with that. Like they were down, uh, we spoke or uh, Nate Palin was down at the HPO summit. We were at at Bragg a couple of weeks ago. And um, so we do uh, the methodology course where, you know, like the NCA goes in and kind of teaches you a little bit of everything. I really, from having taught, you know, 300 seminars, 300 plus seminars around the globe, uh, just from the amount of people that we worked with from working with CrossFit, um, I saw how unprepared people were to take our seminar. And they showed up without this like basic foundational knowledge of like fiber types and like uh, motor unit recruitment and eccentric and concentric and isometric contractions and how they play into lifting and like mechanics and just some like very, very basic stuff. And when I looked around at like NASM and uh, NSCA and all that, they, they were like, you know, kind of teaching uh, by their bylaws, just teaching you kind of a, a, this, this general swath of everything. And I wanted to create uh, a course that people could take, which is our methodology course that had the required readings and the pieces that I needed them to understand and kind of all like, you know, everything from super training to, you know, uh, Hatfield's power and everything in between. And I needed them to know the information so that they weren't just provided this kind of like, I mean, almost like you go to college where, you know, I take this like lower division course and I learn a little bit of everything. And then as I start to specialize and do my major, I get more specific courses. I wanted something like it was an upper division on how to be a strength coach, how to effectively coach and the information that I thought was most important. Uh, and from the, I always think that the fact that the job that we did with CrossFit, we went out and we taught all these specialty courses for them. Uh, I don't think anybody on the planet understands other than probably Kelly and a few other people that have taught these, how many people we worked with and how we were able to see things in real time where something would present itself and you would see these trends and, and where somebody else might have an idea and work with a few athletes. We were working with, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 athletes every single weekend all over the planet for almost a decade. And when that happens um, and those people are all following a very similar training program, like I was offering across the football, you can start seeing these massive distinctions from people that followed our program versus the people that didn't follow our program and the people that weren't following a strength program like what we were putting out had these huge deficiencies in these gaping holes. And it just allowed me to go back and really create what we do for the Power Athlete Methodology course. And then once they get through that course, we have this thing called the Block One, and they show up here to Austin, Texas a few times a year. I think we have four or five of them a year. And it's a weekend where they come in and actually do some Socratic methods, sit around the round table and field questions. Uh, they, great. they coach, so they have to present and coach an athlete in front of a coach. And then um, we have a written test, and then there's kind of a culture deal where we bring them in, we do some training, and then I get to do some fun stuff with them. And then they get graded. And, you know, we have uh, right now about a 65 70% passing, but all the people that tend to – that have not passed have all come back and actually earned their blocks. So um, I think of the thousands of people we put through the methodology, about 104, and we got another 20 coming this weekend have tested for their blocks and then those become the coaches that we use for our, you know, uh, seminars and the different things that we go and teach. So we do that. Uh, we have some events here every year and we do the, we do our symposium, which is in December 
And so periodically, um, you know, it's been really good uh, to have events here. But, I, you know, I'm sure like you guys, uh, when I lived in Newport Beach, our gym was in Costa Mesa. And even though it's roughly about five miles in distance, it was about a 25 minute commute. And I just, you know, got tired of it. And so we moved out here to Texas and I have uh, a building on our property, which is our office. Uh, that's a, you know, a converted barn that we converted into office space. And then I built a building on top of the hill on the other side of our property, which is 5,000 square feet, which has a gym and a, a full place for, you know, seminars and whatever we want to do. So it's been really, it's been good for not only us, but also great for my family and my kids to kind of see that this happens. You know, I think they'll grow up with an interesting perspective of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's all happening right at their house. <laughs> yeah. So so, uh, you know, it is interesting to hear, you know, think about you and Kelly and the other CrossFit SMEs teaching so many people hey, on, for so I many years. I worked for John at his course before I even you was teaching an official course. course. Yeah, right. Oh well, you know what happened is uh, we needed, you, you wanted, you needed to get your own course. And I think the only way they were going to give you your course was if they saw that you were going to come work and kick ass on my course. And then they were like, <laughs> wait a minute, this is too much lightning in one place. So we're going to give Kelly his own course. <laughs> um, you know, I, I want to get in because this whole season is sort of a where are they now of CrossFit people. And I do want to get into how you first learned about CrossFit. But I feel that before that, um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your pre-CrossFit athletic background. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in Southern California, uh, youngest of three brothers, uh, went to high school in Palos Verdes, uh, played you know, sports there, high school football, um, you know, did some fighting stuff, uh, basketball, you know, normal things that kids do. And I ended up being pretty decent at, you know, lifting some weights and playing football and then ended up getting a scholarship to go to UC Berkeley, where I went up in uh, Northern California. Um, was there five years, was able to get a uh, undergraduate degree in rhetoric, like English philosophy degree, while I was playing football and then did my master's in education in my fifth year. Uh, around that time, I got drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles as the second pick in the fourth round and then came in and started as a rookie for the Eagles and then went on to play five years in Philadelphia and then uh, had a contract dispute and got traded to the Kansas City Chiefs where I played there for four years. And then uh, my contract finished up and my 10th year was at the New England Patriots and I ended up getting hurt at the last preseason game. I chipped off a, well, I'll more say like sheared off a piece of bone off of my kneecap or somewhere in the knee. And it ended up getting lodged in the joint and uh, thought I could just kind of muscle through it and then wasn't able to and ended up having surgery. And they pulled out like some golf balls out of my knee and um, tried to rehab. And I was still rehabbing and, you know, training, thinking I might go back and play another year. And I just couldn't get the swelling and I just couldn't get the, the function out of my knee. And I realized that there was probably some writing on the wall. And that was like uh, my 10th year. And all of a sudden I was in my 11th and it just didn't seem like something that I should continue to chase. I was uh, able to play and do my job at a very, very high level. And I never wanted to tint or tarnish what I was able to do by being less than what I was capable of. So, you know, opposed from like some of those guys that are like, ah, he doesn't have any more, but we can kind of hang around. And I, I didn't want to be one of those guys. I wanted to play at the highest level or I didn't want to play and I'd just go do something else. And uh, I was planning on actually uh, going to law school and rebooting. I had applied for that Adrian Cragen scholarship at Berkeley, which was for a four-year letterman to go to Bolt. And um, I was planning on, you know, retaking my LSATs because I think I took my LSATs in like 99 or 98. And they weren't current, so I'd have to go back and retake them. And that was kind of the path I was looking at. 
And, um, and then about that time, um, I ended up getting approached by CrossFit about doing the sinkhole CrossFit football and creating this specialty seminar and training program that was, you know, biasing more strength and power and speed on kind of, if CrossFit was in the middle, they wanted to have in CrossFit endurance on one side and power or, uh, CrossFit football, you know, really power athlete on the other. And that was how it was originally pitched to me. And, uh, we, you know, never really having taught a seminar, really not understanding much about programming. I reached out to my friends like Kelly and some various other people and said, Hey, um, you know, can you help me with some programming? So they sent me a bunch of workouts. I put a website together, pushed those awful workouts out there. And then about a month after we launched, I think the first day we launched, we got about 17,000 hits in a hundred plus countries. And then, uh, it kind of turned into a thing. And then CrossFit hit me up and said, Hey, you got to have a, a seminar. And so I reached back out to my friends and said, Hey, let's go, you know, let's go teach a seminar. And so Kelly showed up and Raphael showed up and the guys all showed up to come teach the seminar. And uh, Kelly was so good. They ended up offering him his own seminar. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so they tried to tear us our love and apart. The supple leopard was yeah, born. And, okay, and that was uh, it. So I don't know the statistics, but I'm pretty sure a 10 year NFL career is pretty long. Yeah. Um, what, what's the deal? Is it, what, what's the average NFL career? Uh, they say it's right around three years, but I think that average is really um, deceptive in that uh, the NFL is really kind of an interesting deal in that you can either play or you can't, and that happens very quickly. So when they say like the average is three years, uh, that's kind of it's, it's weird because you can think about all these guys that have played at like the highest level. You, I mean, you have Tom Brady playing his 20th year, and you have – you know, Tony Gonzalez playing 17 and Will Shields and all the guys that I played with that were all 10 plus year, you know, played between 10 and 15, 14 years. And you see these guys that have these really long extended careers. And you think you're like, man, all these guys in the NFL all seem to be like seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 13 year guys. Like, why is the average only three years? And it's because I think in the last, I think in the last like 20 years, I think it was like, or maybe it was the last 30 years, 20,000 guys have played in the NFL, but it was like less than like, I think it was like 740 have played longer than three or three or four years. Right. Either just, you make it or you don't. Yeah. So it's, it's one and of it's, those things where you, you either can, can play, you can either do the job from day one and if you stay healthy, you can do it for a long time or you just don't get a chance to play and to, uh, to, to, to do the job. You had a reputation. I mean, you've always been big and strong. Um, you know, we laughed about deadlifting and sprints, and you're like, oh, yeah, high school. Like, you've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. One of the things that I think that people don't appreciate is that CrossFit at the time when you came in was GPP. It was just, hey, here's a base program so that you can again go out and go do sports. You can just, you know, you can be an average person. Here's your, We're just going to meet your fitness needs. But no one had really wrapped their head around how to use this style of programming for a specific purpose in terms of like, how do I manage my volume during the season? How, what, what does, what does in season training, out season training look like different? We basically was just like a lot of fitness, man, it, hope, hope you're not too sore to play your sport. And you were the first person. I mean, Brian McKenzie had done a little bit of doing this with a monostructural workout, doing CrossFit and then run or swim and bike, but that's very different than the demands of actually playing a sport. And you were the, as far as I know, and can remember, the first person who sort of came in and hybridized some of the principles to actually make CrossFit work in terms of actually being a, an athlete. 
you talk a little, a little bit about that whole? Because I think that people don't appreciate sort of how revolutionary that was. He was the first person who actually worked with an athletic situation where you could take these principles and apply them in season, out season, and and actually develop the skills. It was very almost sports preparation, not GPP anymore. Yeah, the um, you know, I mean, uh, to have GPP, there has to be. You know, I like, let me see how I put this. And GPP, we're saying general yeah, physical preparedness. Like, right? like to have general physical preparedness, you have to have a specific physical preparedness. It's kind of like a, what goods, you know, uh, you know, angels without a devil. Like you have to have one to have the other because without some form of SPP, it's just training. So like there has to be a general. And if there's no specific, then everything's general. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of, of sports and what I was able to do for football and power sports is strength is the platform at which everything's built. Um, you know, you can take away a lot of elements of fitness and as long as you're still strong, you can continue to do your job, you know, but I, I saw, I mean, we had always done glycolytic capacity work. I understood the terms of capacity. I knew what strength was. Um, I didn't really put much preference with aerobic capacity and that was kind of a mistake I had made. Because uh, if I had paid more attention to aerobic capacity uh, as I became an older NFL player, I would have understood a little bit about like capacity and conditioning and um, you know, keeping like that aerobic system really healthy. So I think as a younger NFL player, I didn't really have to because I could burn the candle at both ends with no effects. But I think as you age, you know, like, you know, maintaining mitochondrial density and making sure that your aerobic system is, is, is very, very high allows you to continue to make strength and all these other things built. So I didn't really understand that. And when I went to it, I thought, man, maybe it's metabolic conditioning. Maybe if I can increase my glycolytic capacity, I can like continue to drive adaptation and uh, it worked for a time, but I think the volume at which I had to do to continue to drive adaptation was so high that it ended up having a negative effect on my ability for like true max 100% kind of efforts like what you see in, uh, in football. So, I mean, like imagine like 75 to 7 max efforts a day opposed from like 20 minutes of continuous submaximal efforts. And That's right. like when you get all submaximum efforts, you get a conversion of fast twitch to slow twitch muscle fibers because you have to be able to handle the load. So I remember like being in camp and I remember them snapping the ball and like there was this weird hesitation I had. And I remember thinking like, ah, oh, fuck, I made a mistake in my training. Like I biased something I shouldn't have. And I remember when I ended up getting hurt and like my, my injury came from an overuse. I had just been doing too much volume. And I think competing in the games and going to training camp and, you know, thinking that I was bulletproof, um, was part of the problem. And then when CrossFit approached me, uh, I wasn't bitter. I wasn't angry. I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was duped. I just didn't want anybody else to ever make the mistake that I made. You can't like before CrossFit football and before us, really, there wasn't any periodized strength template. People really weren't doing that. And then after no, you can't walk true. into a gym that doesn't have it. You, um, one of the things that just to you know, wrap up that sort of the sentiment is that you did show people that you could take the template and really tweak it up and down. And if you were going to work with power athletes, I mean, you just, you know, now it looks, it looks very much like some of the, you know, your, your program has continued to become very sophisticated and used by widely. I mean, you know, when I run into your programming in the military, I run into your programming uh, in, in high level professional sports, especially power athlete sports. Um, you know, I think you gave permission to tweak programming up and down 
So it looked a little bit more like traditional gym training, and yet you could still maintain the fact that you're like, you're like, hey, look, you can still be conditioned, but we don't have to beat you over the head with this conditioning. Well, that, that's the, the thing, and I still, I mean, I just saw Mark Ripto last week. We went to dinner. He was in town and uh, here in Austin, and we still argue about this, where he's like, you know, I need to bring in beginners and just get them to lift weights. And I was like, yeah, that's, I, I agree with you. But like doing some base level of conditioning improves the adaptation so that they can train with a higher volume with more frequency. Like if somebody's so deconditioned that we can only really get them to lift weights one or two days a week, then, you know, and that goes back to, you know, when I was out at Westside with Louie, him talking about like, how many workouts a week do you do? And I was like, I don't know, we train six. He's like, I train 18. I do. I, I've, I've basically trained to the point where I could get a higher training volume by more repeated efforts. And I can, he's like, you know, everybody always looks at volume in terms of, you know, sets and reps, but I look at it like, Hey, if I can train two or three times a day and he kind of really tweaked my brain in that. And I realized that like the only way that you could do that was by raising your GPP or just getting in shape. And, uh, and that was things that were happening in sports anyway, because you would play practice and then you'd go lift weights. Yeah. Right. Like you were already training multiple times a day instead of trying to cram it all into a single session. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, it, it was naive on my part. And I think it was, um, just, just from, a, a, a like a bias in my own, like, I think we have this like information bias or confirmation bias that we run into. And I constantly am trying to fight this within myself. So I'm always in this like self-reflective self-analyzing of like, Hey, is this stuff any good? Are we doing the right thing? Is the way that I'm teaching this? And like, so it's, there's always gotta be this counterpoint and check. And I think I got to this point where I thought that, uh, endurance and like building an aerobic base was just kind of horseshit. I was like, you know what, if, if I'm super strong, and I can do a ton of like glycolytic capacity work, it should pay dividends on the other side. And uh, all the kind of, you know, standardized strength templates and all the periodization that you looked at, I just kind of thought like uh, block periodization and the way that they're doing periodization is all wrong. I think a concurrent training model where I'm able to train different energy systems over the course of a week or even in a single day is more beneficial. And I just didn't really put much faith in, uh, in building aerobic base until man, I want to say it was like a year or two after we did it or after CrossFit football came out, we were kind of deep into power athlete. And uh, I read a research article talking about like incre increased aerobic capacity um, at like a 70% heart rate uh, over the course of X amount, like resulted in like these strength gains and some muscle gains. And I was like, this is bullshit. Let me test it. And I tested it. And all of a sudden, like, not only did my body fat go down, I gained muscle and like my lifts went through the roof. And I remember thinking like somebody should have been like, dude, continue to do what you're doing, like your sports specific work, lift weights, short conditioning workouts and some capacity stuff. But like continue, you know, like like start, the, you know, three, four, five days a week. Give me, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes of either, you know, some hiking, some aerobic work, whether it be on like an assault or something like, you know, a C2 rower, just build like a, as you age, you need to develop that aerobic system more efficiently. And I think like that would have been the adaptation that I was going for. Yeah. Um, like it, it just, it, it was super interesting for me. And I think uh, where I was, and, and I've had time to reflect on this, man, like we've had so many podcasts and different people ask me and, and then just my own personal reflection um, but I was, somebody asked me recently, like, why do most NFL players struggle when they leave the NFL? Um, and they were like, you know, you don't really, you know, you seem to kind of hit the ground running and have done some neat stuff since then. Like, what was the difference? 
And um, I had like a good, decent amount of time to kind of think on this one. And what I realized was like, I was never uh, somebody who just like naturally showed up and was successful. Like, like, like from the, the first time I lifted weights, I wasn't that strong. It was a process that I had to create to get stronger. I wasn't big enough and I like played myself into a lot of places. Um, when I got drafted, I showed up and like, uh, you know, I was, I was definitely, you know, out kicking my coverage and far reaching. And I realized that like I put a process together that allowed me to be successful. And so when I retired from the NFL, I just took the same process and applied it to different things and it ended up being successful. Um, I think a lot of NFL players are very gifted natural athletes. And so they don't necessarily understand how they got where they are. Well, I don't know. I just, I could run, I could catch, I could do these things. And now I'm in the NFL. So then all of a sudden it ends one day. And I don't know if there's natural athletic aptitude for success outside of football. Uh, it takes a process. It takes hard work. It takes, you know, some thinking, some dedication, and just a, a relentless blindness, you know, putting your shoulder to the, to the wall or to the wind and just continuing to step forward and not breaking. And uh, that was kind of my process of like a sheer will. I'm just going to put my shoulder against the wind and just keep moving. And I think a lot of guys, when they retire, haven't done that process or haven't done that work leading up to it. For me, it just seemed like, you know, this is the next step. This is what we do. And uh, that's, I think, what uh, with Power Athlete and everything we've been doing, I took that same process of learning. And like I said, man, like when we, like, you know, you know, when we taught all these seminars, and I, I firmly believe for what you do in terms of the supple leopard and mobility wad, a lot of that came from just the fact that you got to see so many people in such yeah. a small amount of time that complex problems that would have taken people decades to figure out, you figured out in weeks. We did the That's same right. thing. Absolutely true. I mean, like I, I, you know, like our whole primal patterns challenge in X, Y, and Z, the ability to seamlessly and effortlessly combine primal movement patterns through space to accomplish a known and novel task. Remember the definition of athleticism, which I called you about all those years ago. Um, and you actually contributed to the novel task piece, um, that came in real life when I was trying to explain to people, you could, like the best trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that capacity and athleticism were the same thing. Mm -hmm. The best trick the devil ever played was convincing the people that when you talk about intensity, it's not an emotional response. It's a percentage of how strong you are. Like if I'm training high intensity and it's at 90% of my one RM, Okay, that's intensity. Me just having an emotional response towards something is like, that's not intensity. And so there was a lot of really interesting pieces that we dealt with. And that's why today yeah. we still use resisted band runs in all my classes. Okay, so Because I'm it's the worst thing that you ever came up with. <laughs> Lisa, Lisa's shaking her head and she's like, yeah, they're she's the, like, worst. It's the worst. And, but I can choose a kickball team instantly from that drill. So uh, I'm going to take a little turn here sure. in the convo, John, would, to ask a compound question um, about nutrition, because I know you care a lot about nutrition and are pretty meticulous about your own nutrition. So I'd like to, that, that's the second part of my question. Okay. But um, the first part of my question is, uh, one of the most impactful stories you've ever told me about your life. Um, and for those who don't know you, you are a very big person. Um, but I know that it wasn't easy to become a big person. Um, and part of that in high school was via your mom making pancakes. Yeah, the pancake diet. 
So I'm wondering if you can tell that story and then sort of connect it to like, you know, what your nutrition philosophy is now, how you guys eat. Um, Especially for know. like for strength athletes and, and what you recommend and also sort of because you are not 22 anymore. Like you, you've talked about how your nutrition has really made a big difference in you. Yeah. Can you talk about wrap all those things up? But, but pancakes. Yeah. First. So I remember I was a freshman in high school. I was like six foot, like a buck 65. And I remember the first day I went to lift weights, I benched like 115 pounds. And I was so humiliated because all my friends were benching at least 135. And they didn't want to take off the big plates to put on the little plates. So I was like benching by myself at like 95. And I remember I came home and I told my mom and I was like, so I was just kind of, I was so embarrassed. And you know what? Like, that's another interesting thing I've thought about. Um, shame is a tremendous driving force and like a, uh, like such a pivotal thing within my own life and other people, like the shame of like, I can't do something. So I'm going to continue to do this until I, I like it, to me, like shame was never something where I ran from it. Like shame was like, you know, like uh, my uh, reality check of like, hey, you're not up to par. You need to get your shit together and do this. And like, I, I don't know where I'd be without the shame of not being able to do it. So I couldn't bench uh, 135 and I came home and I told my mom and she's like, well, you're going to have to go to the gym more. And I was like, well, maybe if I got bigger and put on some weight, they said I'm kind of skinny. And I was like, you know, maybe like some like eating more or protein shakes. My mom's like, you know what? I know how to put on weight. And I was like, okay, what do you got? And she was like, we're going to, uh, I'll just make you pancakes uh, at every meal. So we'll just supplement all of your meals with pancakes. And I was like, sounds great. I love pancakes. <laughs> so two or three. So, <laughs> this is funny. So my mom would make like the normal size pancakes and she would like flip them out and I would eat them as fast as she could make them. And so then like over time, the pancakes just got like bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, to the point where like, they were like hanging over the plate. And I remember I came home one day and my mom had gone and like, like gotten some new plates, but they were chargers, you know, like the plates that you put down, like, like on the, on the table. And Under you a plate. A, yeah. Like a decorative yeah, plate. Like a decorative plate. She got these massive chargers and the pancakes were like fitting on the chargers. So I was like, oh, sweet. So we're like crushing these pancakes. And I think I went from like 165 that first year and I benched 115. And the next year I was like, I want to say 205. And then I was like 225. And then I think I was like my senior year, I was like 255 or 260 and I ended up benching like 315. So I put like 200 pounds on my bench and gained, you know, and I squat. Like, 200 pounds? Yeah, like, uh, yeah, I, I gained like, I went from 165 to like, yeah, just, I think it was like 250. So I would put aren't on you, like, Aren't you uh, gluten intolerant too? Which is my yeah, that was the other funny part was so that, uh, well, I don't think I was at the time, but maybe I played myself into that. But yeah, these massive pancakes. So I didn't realize how far things had gotten to when a buddy of mine came over to my house and we were sitting there and they were like, mom's like, you guys hungry? You want some pancakes? I was like, yeah, bring them up. So my mom puts these big ass plates down and like, you know, has like a, you know, like remember John Candy with like the snow shovel and like uh, that movie where he's like flipping pancakes, like the huge pancakes. Um, it was like uh, Uncle Buck. <laughs> so my mom like hoists these massive pancakes on the plate and the dude is like, are you fucking serious? Like, this is what you're going to eat? And I'm like, yeah, you better eat it. You know, we can only eat two of them. He's like, these are the biggest pancakes I've ever seen. They're like wagon wheels. So I've dubbed the, I, we used to dub them wagon wheels. And like, they got changed from pancakes to the wagon wheel diet. And uh, it's pretty funny because like, I joke with my mom about it. And she gets all serious. She's like, oh, you know, like, just like, I'll take like offense to it. But it's, it's really funny. The, uh, the my mom gets all weird too. I'm like, 
I'm like, mom, how I wasn't in ballet or gymnastics. Didn't you love me? And she's like, I did the best I could. Yeah, I did the best. Yeah. So like, yeah, the, uh, so yeah, they're the wagon wheel story. I, uh, like I constantly ask my daughters, I'm like, Hey, you guys want me to make pancakes? And they're like, no. I'm like, oh, so then like Our kids don't even eat cereal. Uh, they don't even know. So like, yeah, the, uh, yeah, like, like my, my son, I'll like, call it. I'll be like, you want some pancakes? He's like, yeah. And I'll make him like one. And he'll like, look at it and be like, dude, this is a lot of pancake. I'll be like, I only know how to make them big. So it's as uh, big as my head, dad. Ah, uh, yeah. So that was the wagon wheel story. And I, I think you, I wrote about a... it on my talk to me, Johnny blog. I like, I, I still laugh that I was able to write all that stuff. And then the funny part was I put that out there and people were like, met my mom and asking her about it. My mom had never read it. She's like, what are you writing about me on this blog? And I was like, <laughs> ah, I told him the wagon You're wheel. the best story. mom in the world. So then she, best mom. she ends up reading it. And then of course calls me and it's like, none of that story is accurate. I'm like, mom, it's exactly how it was. I have like, co- uh, like collaborating witnesses. And she's like, I don't remember it that way. I don't want to talk about it. There was a there was a pitcher of batter ready to go in the fridge all the time. <laughs> no, she she would get this crustis crusties mix from Costco, and it was like you just basically throw the powder in, you put in an egg and like a little bit of like uh, olive oil, like some kind of liquid, yeah, some, yeah. yeah, and water, and then you just beat them up and just throw them right in there. So it was pretty funny. So how is that different from um, your nutrition approach we these get, days? We get a lot of young kids who. Fancy themselves power athletes in our neighborhood who come up to me. They're like, "Yo, I want to. How do I get big? Like, what, what do you tell parents of young power athletes? Um, like, kids are playing football. Man, I mean, I mean, I've I've gone through such like a uh, like a very interesting kind of evolution of diet stuff. And that you know, obviously, I ate kind of a you know higher carb, kind of moderate low, uh, lower you know fat, kind of moderate protein diet. Um, and then when I went to college. Uh, you know, we were pretty broke. I think my scholarship check was like 740 bucks a month. My rent was 500. My mom and dad kicked me a couple hundred extra bucks. And so our diet looked like, uh, eggs. Um, I think it was like eggs, beans, ground beef and rice and like grape nut cereal, I think is what we had. Like, and that was what we ate for like, you know, 30 days and we'd go Costco. Um, I, I just didn't know. And, and I remember, yeah, grape nuts, like the, probably the <laughs> single greatest, caloric load per cup of anything you could imagine like like a cup of grape nuts i think has like two thousand grams of carbohydrate like it's enough carbohydrate so like don't um don't i don't want to off track you but i just was at costco a couple weeks ago and it's a new product they have like this ginormous box of grape nuts you can now seven buy pounds. The box at Costco. Seven and, pounds. you know, the old box we had in like the 70s and 80s was kind of a small box, but dense. Yeah. And I literally envisioned myself buying this box and like checking out of my family and work life for a week and just like eating grape nuts because I could easily well, do that. Your jaws couldn't. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, so, so, yeah, the, oh God, grape nuts. Um, the, uh, but so like that was the diet that I ate. And I remember uh, I had, like I, I read some article that talked about like, uh, it was like some, like, I'd like, I remember we were in college, I was trying to get bigger and stronger. And I read some flex magazine article that was talking about like three grams of protein per pound of body weight. And I remember like doing the calculation for like, I was like 280 pounds. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to eat like 850 grams of protein a day. <laughs> and I remember like trying to do the calculation and I was at Costco and, uh, they sold those frozen bags of chicken that were like 30 to a bag. And I remember thinking like the average, uh, I think it was like the average breast was like seven ounces and that was like 49 grams of protein or 50 grams of protein, let's say per. And so I'm like doing this. Okay. I'm like, I got 30, I got 50. All right. So there's like, 
you know, like 1500, whatever it was like grams. Like I just remember like looking at the bags of protein and then being able to be like, okay, how many bags of this do I need to get through a month? And I remember like only having a certain amount. So I went and I bought all the, all the chicken I could afford, which was like four bags of chicken, which turned out to be like 240 chicken breasts. And then I had like this like huge five pound sack of white rice. And I remember there was like milk and whatever else I got and I bought it all. And I remember I would like have like a huge rice cooker and I would put a like chicken stock or whatever I got like in there in the rice cooker just to make the rice taste like more palatable. And then I would cook those right, those chicken breasts on the George Foreman cooker. And I remember like my goal was to eat like 12 to 14 a day. And, uh, and then I would drink shots of olive oil was how the rest, I got the rest of my calories. So I figured it out. I was like, okay, it was chicken, rice, and olive oil. Nailed where, it. Yeah, where my macros were like the, the protein, the carb, and the fat. And I was able to like wow. figure that thing out. And I was able to eat like whatever I had, like $500 a month. I was able to spend that 500 at my Costco and basically figure this thing out. And it ended up working. And then I got to the NFL and I remember like I got my first paycheck and I was like, fuck that. I'm eating red meat for every meal. I'm so tired of chicken. I'm never eating. <laughs> but uh, you're like, dude, I can I can buy oh, all the chicken bags now. Well, dude, those chicken, <laughs> those bags of frozen chicken uh, breasts. I mean, they're they're flash frozen. Gillette and I, we were, we we, we, like we lived on yeah. those. And we remember we so being broke. like, someday we're not gonna have to eat this chicken. <laughs> yeah, well, someday we can buy fresh chicken. Oh, dude, I yeah, and it's it's like the classic story of like, and every time we go to Costco, I like walk over there and I pull it out and show it to the kids and like, those that, that was like plastic. I'm like, it's worse than that. I'm like, oh, when you, but like maybe one day you guys will be broke. But I remember I, I went into this uh, Andronicos market, which was like a nice market in Berkeley. We lived near. And I remember like looking at all of this cheese and it was all like, you know, like $14 for this piece and this. And I was like, I could buy all of this cheese if I wanted to. I'm not going to, but I could. And that was like a huge realization of like, and then like going over it and so like, I was so conditioned to like go over to like where like the dollar meats and the under plastic and then realizing like, wait a minute, I can actually order the meat that's like, in the counter behind the glass. And that was kind of a cool reason. Sometimes we, we sometimes ask our friends are like, how did you know when you made it? Like when you walked into Andronico's and could buy all the cheese, <laughs> that's, that's like a good sign. Yeah. For Kelly, he knew he made it when he could go to the sports basement and not just buy a single protein bar, but a whole box. <laughs> well, that he was like, "I've made it. Like, I'm done. I'm rich." Mike, I, I just remember going there and trying to buy protein bars and being like, "Aren't these things usually like four or five bucks? This thing's like nine dollars." I was like, God damn, these things are expensive. But uh, when, uh, when we first moved to the city, I found this old Chinese grocery store in our neighborhood, and uh, they would they had so, expired balance bars, but they're only slightly expired. And I was like, How come no one is like on this? Like, they're only like they're only like, slightly rancid. Okay, sorry. We uh, please oh, continue oh, so, with your nutrition evolution. So uh, then I got to the NFL, and I met um, a guy named Mauro De Pasquale, who's the guy that wrote the anabolic diet. And uh, Mauro uh, hooked me up with my first supplement deal, and he actually did all my original diet stuff, and it was a cyclical ketogenic diet. We would be like, like low carb for like you know five days, and then it was like a carb reload. And he had like a whole kind of system to, for specialization. And um, I was pretty like I was pretty big, I was pretty strong, but I was um, I wasn't as lean as I should have been. You know, I was probably like most NFL guys, probably 18, 19, 20 percent body fat. And after that summer working with, or that whole off season working with Morrow, I was like, I think I came in and I was probably the same 308, 310. And I was probably right around, you know, like eight, nine, 10% body fat. So I had dropped serious body fat. Let me just say, that's not hyperbole. I have seen you at 300 pounds and under 10%. Yeah. 
It's crazy. And so, uh, and it was just really this like big, like I remember him telling me like, Hey, you know, saturated fat is not, it's not evil. Um, you know, like in, you know, carbohydrates in terms of like, you know, uh, you know, being like extreme, like big insulin shifts and went through this whole kind of deal. And, um, I had taken a bunch of nutrition classes and wanted to minor in nutrition at Berkeley and was interested in doing some science stuff. It just wasn't feasible playing football. And all of the information that I remember we were going over, he was teaching me was like in direct contradiction to what I'd learned in college. And I remember thinking like, you know what, like, you know, and like, I'm sure you guys have had this same kind of deal in your life where you're like, can I just like, I, I, you know, like there's, you know, the road less traveled, I guess you could say, but I have two options. I can either continue to do what I'm doing because I think I know everything, or I can like empty my cup and like be a white belt and learn from somebody who's obviously done more than I have. And, uh, that theme in my life has been pretty pervasive. I mean, through my entire life, I've like come into these kind of like weird little situations where I'm like, I'm just going to humble myself. And I said, you know what? Hey, this guy knows more than me. I'm gonna throw everything I knew that I thought I knew and just go do this. And, uh, that was really like my understanding of like, you know, the, the single most important macronutrient for body composition and muscle is always protein. And like how you kind of, as long as your protein demands are met and, you know, for people that are lifting weights and hard training, it's somewhere around a gram, a pound of body weight, maybe more gram and a half. And then really like how you adjust the carbohydrates and the fats is kind of based on some other things like, you know, not only what you can handle, what you're trying to do. And that was really my first forte into really carb cycling and uh, using that cyclical ketogenic diet. And so that was how I ate for most of my NFL career. And I kind of use carbs as, as really just like kind of fuel. And it just, yeah, so I, I did that. And then when uh, I ended up meeting Rob Wolf years ago at the CrossFit Games, he was like, oh, let me talk to you about this paleo diet. And the paleo diet was very similar to how I had always eaten because it was based off of what Morrow had, like eat real foods. You know, nobody ever got strung out of a vending machine and all these little things that, you know, he and Zangus had talked about. I mean, I remember, you know, old man Zangus talking about uh, Vince Garanda and the Stone Age diet and, uh, you know, the way that those guys ate. And so I'd always kind of always stuck to like a real food diet and it just made a ton of sense. And what you used to, what I remember you used to tell young strength athletes was you're like, eat whole, as many whole foods as you yeah. can, keep an eye on your protein and then add milk in if you can tolerate it, if you are... A young person yeah. is that still roughly yeah. the I, I think, uh, recipe? Yeah, I think dairy is. Um, even though Lauren Cordain tried to fight me over this, uh, I think uh, I think unpasteurized raw dairy or kefir or some form of fermented dairy uh, is really uh, a foundation of any good athlete, and really is for all young people. I think um, we've really lost our way in terms with a few things, and one of them is uh, fermented foods. Um, you know, if you look at every hunter gatherer tribe on the planet if you go back and look at all western prices stuff every one of them ate some form of fermented food i mean there's a reason. beer and bread is a fermented yeah. food or should yeah be. like uh um uh kimchi and then you look at like sauerkraut i mean uh um you know pickles uh you know kefir uh greek yogurt i mean all of these you know fermented foods were all pretty pretty substantial in all these diets so i think like that piece and then the other big one which I remember old man Zangus used to always give us these liver pills and we'd have to eat these beef liver pills and they tasted awful. And I remember being like, is there something else? He's like, well, you could eat liver and <laughs> no, organ meats. And so we would eat liver and onions maybe once a week when I was growing up and I kind of got away from it. And then like going back and realizing that there's all these like, you know, 
like properties of eating organ meats. So I think uh, if I could make two recommendations for young athletes would be eating some form of fermented dairy and then like at least incorporating some form of organ meats in their diet. Um, those two big ones were, were ones that I found. And then uh, really just like trying to get people to not eat. Well, I have one big nutrition rule, which it seems to have pervade all else is the fact that like, don't be weird, which is what I found. So I love strange. this. Someone just told me this the other day. Yeah, like, they were referencing you. Tell us. I'm sitting at a seminar and like, you know, people are counting out 14 almonds because I can't have 15. And I had some weird guy who was on a raw diet who was eating, ate nothing but raw meat, drank this like elixir of like raw eggs, raw chocolate and raw milk. And like, dude, the dude just smelled like, <laughs> like, um, like raw. He, he, oh, he, he smelled like, uh, like, like uh, old kimchi that had been in like a like athletic shoe for like in a locker room for 10 years. Like you just did not smell good. And I remember telling them, I'm like, yo man, like what's the end game of this? Oh, it's all healthy. I'm like, cause you were really, you look super inflamed. Uh, you didn't move real well. You have a ton of injuries. You're by far the weakest dude we've had. Like, I don't think that what you're doing is driving the dividends and like everybody gets into this confirmation bias. So like, I want to do this and I'm looking for ways to confirm that what I'm doing is right. And they'd come to my seminar all the time looking for me to validate what they were doing. And like, I'm not going to validate you just because you think that you, that I should, cause you paid the money. So, um, yeah, well, I love that because I, and I don't know if it's just because my mom hammered into like, into my brain that you have to be polite, be a guest. but it's like, be a guest, but it's like, look, you know, Kelly and I don't make lasagna and we don't eat lasagna and, but we're not celiacs and we're not going to die. And you know, if your grandmother invited me over for dinner and served me lasagna, I yeah. would eat it 100%. because otherwise proud. you're weird and impolite. It's like going to Oktoberfest and you're like, I remember we went to Oktoberfest, we did a seminar in Nuremberg and we went down to Munich and we're at Oktoberfest and you know, you're in the beer, like the beer tents and like people having beers and like, you know, they bring you that like 20 ounce or 40 ounce beer stein and everybody's having a good time. With a pretzel. Oh, and they bring the pretzels around. Like, am I not going to eat the pretzel or have the, are you kidding me? I'm like, I, I'm, I'm, I don't really eat pretzels. I probably got some like gluten allergy, but shit, I ate, I drank beer and had pretzels because I'm at like, the story doesn't work at me at Oktoberfest without me eating beer. And then when people go, like, what have I said? You're like, oh, on the pretzels? Oh, I didn't have any. I was following my, my strict paleo diet. I'm like, come on, man. You got to have the pretzel. So I think um, <laughs> I like so, so, so that was interesting for me. And then um, I, I really kind of, uh, you know, like for me, after I retired from the NFL, um, I was in Dr. Amen's study uh, that he did for the NFL where they analyzed a bunch of NFL players. And they brought me in and they had a scan of my brain. And I remember sitting down with Dr. Amen and all of his people and they put my brain up on the big screen and he's like going through and he's like, you see this part on your left frontal lobe that doesn't light up under under the stuff. That's the part of your brain that's damaged um, from playing football. Based off of this, we've, you know, hey, we think you've played this long and this. And I was like, yeah, pretty accurate. And I remember him going through and he's like, we did all this cognitive testing. We've done like intelligence tests. And I, I mean, I went through tests for days and uh, the guy was like, you know, the part of your brain on the left, it's damaged. Um, you know, these are all the issues that we foresaw, but like, as they went through all the other stuff and they were going through all my test scores and I was like, Ooh, what are those ones? He's like, Oh, actually, uh, cognitively and intelligence wise, you were the smartest guy that we've ever had in our study. And you had all these other things like word association and you could do like, there was all of these like positives. And then like, he just skipped over those and wanted to talk about like these negatives of like the fact that like the left side of my brain didn't light up. And that was the part that dealt with like sympathy and empathy. And like, I didn't, I like based upon this damaged part, I probably didn't have emotional intelligence. And I'm like, listening to this. And the guy's like, what do you think? And I'm like, can you go back to the shit where you said that I'm real smart? 
let's go back to that. Let's focus on the positive. <laughs> and uh, I mean, obviously, it was amongst other NFL players, so it's already a shallow pool. I shouldn't be too proud of it. But I left there, and uh, the guy was like, you know, what do you think? And I was like, well, can I get a doctor's note? He's like, for what? I'm like, well, you said that the part of my brain that's messed up is the one that deals with sympathy and empathy. Can I get a doctor's note that excuses my ability to be an insensitive asshole? Because my mom and my wife are never going to believe this shit. And, like, the dude was so confused. And I was, he's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. I'm like, dude, you just gave me a massive deal to say that not only am I intelligent and am I smart and, like, I had, like, high retention in reading and all these other factors that were, like, you know, blew people away. I'm like, don't you think it's, it's for me you should focus on what I can instead of telling me? I mean, but he's also doing a study to the NFL and trying to prove how terrible all this was. So uh, as I left there, I was like, well, you know what, like, if all of this other stuff was able to be maintained, there should theoretically be a way to, for me to repair. And so I reached out to uh, our friend Matt Lalonde and I told Matt what was happening. And he was like, you know what, like, let me pull some research. And so I didn't talk to him for a day or two. And then he pulled like 10,000 research articles and found that like they had had Lalonde. some very, very good results with using ketogenic diets for, for fixing acute and chronic brain trauma. So I went on like a super strict ketogenic diet for almost one year. And, uh, I remember like, I mean, it was like the macros were like, I want to say like, what was it? It was like 75% fat, 25% protein. And I didn't even eat a carb. I think the only carb I had was like coffee and it's not even a real carb. And I was there, uh, had that a year. And I remember, uh, I came out the other side of that. And I remember I, I was, I saw Rob Wolf and Nikki and, uh, we ate, we cooked up some like whatever ribs or something. We had some like Japanese sweet potatoes. And I remember I ate like a bunch of sweet potatoes and it was like somebody like, war you know, like wrapped me up in a warm blanket and gave me a hug. And I was like, man, I feel so much better. And I remember like coming out of the other side of that and feeling like the brain, uh, any of the damage or anything that I was feeling cognitively wide had just kind of like vanished. And, uh, about a year or two later, Maybe three years later, I was um, another doctor. I, I was working with some guys from NSW who were going up to Newport to work with another doctor that was doing like cognitive testing for reaction and a bunch of stuff. And so they hit me up. I'm like, hey, you want to go? So I went over there and the guy scanned my brain and he couldn't find any evidence of any brain damage. So either Dr. Amons was doctored or whatever I did ended up kind of fixing it. And um, um, yeah, so... Uh, so what's, what's interesting about that is what I like is, and I hear that because some of our listeners maybe are as, as nuanced around nutrition, but a couple of things, you always keep it basic. You're always eating whole foods and your nutrition strategies change a little bit, yeah. right? Like you're, it's okay to flex on something to change an aspect or highlight something. I mean, you told me a few years ago, you said, um, you know, if I really watch my diet, I don't have to train as hard. Yeah. Something you said you felt like a little bit more ready if you if you were just a little more sensitive to it and if if you if you go to your house you open it up, lots of spinach, lots of vegetables, lots of meat and eggs, fermented dairy, and that and maybe some strawberries. It's pretty. You guys do what you're saying and you sort of live low and live reasonably all the time, yeah. don't you? Uh, the only thing that that I'm when bad. I say live low, I mean you're just not spiking with you know crazy carbohydrate. No, like um, I think like. Uh... Like for my little girls, like I, I know we get some like 85% chocolate and I'll let them have that. And I know like they get some like super crazy organic ice cream once a week, uh, but they're pretty basic. Uh, the one thing that um, I kind of had like, I've, you know, I've always worked to like kind of test things and I ate super low carb for a really long time. Um, I was kind of like thinking a little bit about like carbohydrates and, uh, you know, the idea that 
hey, if like if protein is constant and you look at like a total caloric load, and I really believe uh, just from like all the nutrition stuff we've done in terms of working with clients that at the end of the day, uh, there's no way to like out food or out cheat total caloric load. Like if you overeat and yeah, like, like if I eat 10,000 calories a day and I burn two, like, uh, like there's no way for me to eat magic foods to like prevent weight gain. And like, if you want to lose weight, like you're going to have to be in a caloric deficit and be hungry. Like, like I, I constantly run into these people like, Oh, I, I want to get in good shape. I want to lean out. I want to lose fat, but I don't want to be hungry. And I'm like, man, I, I like the only way I know how to lose weight is to train into a deficit <laughs> or figure out what my macros. And so I always believed that, um, as long as my protein was high, I didn't really lose muscle mass. And if I was trying to like lose fat, I could either, you know, drop carbs and keep fat kind of high, or I could kind of play with this isocaloric. And, uh, I kind of went back and thought, you know what, like, what if I dropped my fat a little bit lower and I upped a little bit higher carb. And then I looked and I just kind of started looking for some carbs that ended up uh, working well for me. And like, you know, white rice out of the steamer was what we ate all the time as kids. And I ate in the NFL and I've always eaten it. And so I was started supplementing back with some rice and like all of a sudden, like, um, when I was training, uh, like I would get like, um, like we were, I was looking at volume and I was able to get like, uh, like, like pumps faster. Like I was like, almost like, like my, like the muscles blew up faster. Um, all of a sudden my strength went up and I was able to hit some more endurance stuff. And so I kind of have, and I, um, I haven't written it down. I was just kind of based in notes and I need to write something about it, but I have this theory on, um, on almost like macronutrient cycling over the course of the year. I have a thought that like in the cold months, uh, maybe like a higher fat, high, like moderate protein, lower carb. And then as things get warmer, maybe dropping the fat and increasing the carbohydrate and kind of like looking at it like a seasonality thing. Like it's going to be hotter. It's going to be outside. Maybe like more carb might be beneficial. Um, and then also I think by doing that, it, it kind of allows you to um, not really get bored with the same approach. And then the other big right. piece I've been really, really reading way too much on is the idea of like the gut biome. That like um, that you got to think like they looked at a pretty interesting study. I remember Inclodon. I just looked at this where like people really haven't been that different in terms of like macronutrient ratios over the course of a lot of years. But why is it that people are getting so obese eating eating carbs in their diet? And Tom's contention is that like the the gut biome has changed dramatically from like. Things like, uh, you know, uh, you know, hand sanitizers and this, and you know, there's all these factors that fragrances, fragrances. Yeah. I mean, the disruption from perfumes and chemicals. Is so true. his his thing is that the gut biome has changed, and because of it, um, the body is not processing, and some other things are happening, and so including some things like fermented foods, making sure that you're, you know you're getting some organ meats, and then eating enough variety of food. Like that's where I think a lot of people get into trouble in that, um, you know, your, your gut biome and the health of, uh, of the gut is really dependent upon what you put in there. So if you put the same foods consistently in there, the, the gut biome looks kind of very almost simple. But as you kind of increase and kind of throw some different things in there, uh, maybe it increases like the, you know, the various types. So, um, so you're saying that frozen chicken from Costco, rice and olive oil no. is not – the raddest no, it's, it, it's not a good one uh and i know like people are using a lot of probiotics in this uh, i just for me i think eating fermented foods so i try to eat some form of like whether it be uh sauerkraut or um you know something like fermented pickles or i try to eat some form of like weak yogurt something fermented each day uh, to try to fix some of that stuff so um that's kind of where i'm at today uh i don't really think 
Like there's some things that I stand pretty firm on. One is uh, you got to eat real foods. Like I, I just, I like can never believe that like processed foods or all that uh, will ever trump real foods. Like one ingredient is really the standard. And then how you want to kind of like, once we figure out like, Hey, here's your total protein. Um, after that, I think uh, how you adjust your carbohydrates and your fat is kind of based up to you as an individual and what you kind of want to do. Uh, I think, uh, you know, eating, um, you know, a calorie maintenance is pretty smart. If you want to eat calorie maintenance and train into a deficit or, you know, or, or eat in a surplus and train, you know, whether or not you're trying to get bigger or stronger uh, or lose some weight. Um, it just really isn't all that complicated, uh, for supplements. Um, I've always said it that, I think I'm the longest continuous creatine user on the planet. I started taking creatine in 1992. Um, <laughs> I think creatine, like everybody wow. on the planet should take it, uh, not only for, uh, for skeletal muscle, but also for some of the cognitive with the ATP. So uh, it was funny when, we t when I was at the HPO summit, I talked about creatine being beneficial for like a neuroprotectant. And the guy that got up and talked about supplements was like, ah, oh, it's good for muscle. We really haven't analyzed the neuroprotectant part, but that's information's coming. So I thought that was good. Um, but other than that, man, I, I try to get my blood work done twice a year by, uh, uh, Tom Inkledon, and then he goes through and really like looks at my blood and then is able to say, Hey, John, you're deficient in this. You know, these are some of the, the things that I see, and this is a way to maximize. So any supplements or anything I take is really not just like, like, you know, more vitamin B, it, well, uh, just, it's actually, yeah. it's, it's specific. So to what yeah. You, yeah. What you yeah. actually we, need. We totally advocate for this. Blood yeah. Panel. So, yeah, we, we, we're the same. We do the two yeah. blood panels a year. Yeah. And least. so I, I just was out in Arizona, gave all my blood stuff and like, and then what we do is we go back over it and said, Hey, like, this is what I need you to do. If you need to make any diet modifications or any supplement modifications. And then that's kind of what I do. And, uh, I think, uh, for me personally, um, like uh, uh, consistency in training. Like I try to train and do something almost every single day. Uh, I try to sleep at least, you know, if, if I can get more than seven hours, about seven hours is like my minimum. Uh, I know that I'm, I'm much better performance wise. Um, you know, like it's, it's really not that complicated. I kind of joke and think like we had it all figured out when we were three years old, we got to take naps. We got probably eight hours of sleep. You know, we had this like pretty good diet and then we just kind of messed it up and I'm trying to get back to what my three-year-old does. Dude, that is, I've never heard that before, and that is brilliant. Johnny, um, you, I mean, you have always been a master tinkerer and synthesizer. Um, you working on any big projects? Like, yeah, what's, like what's next? What's, what's next, next? For John uh, What's next for us? I mean, really just for us presently, the, the methodology course and the programming stuff that we've been doing, um, you know, we have, uh, I think, almost 4,000 people in, in daily programs between Johnny Wad and Field Strong and, and uh, Jack Street and the other programs we have. Um, I have, you know, probably a couple books that I should sit down and write. Uh, we've been doing a ton of stuff with the U.S. military. Like I said, I was just up at uh, Fort Hood today. You know, we worked with the 18th Airborne pretty extensively and uh, some of the other, you know, different groups. Like we got a couple uh, deals with the guys from NSW from Development Group coming up to do. So um, I just think it's always kind of a, a similar mission of like providing good information and uh, hopefully refining what we're doing to, you know, provide people the best that we can. I mean, I think people deserve, well, let me say, let me figure out how I put this. I think there's so much bullshit and nonsense out there uh, in, in the training space. I mean, like uh, the PT space, I mean, all these things, man, it just seems like the people with the flashy SBS yeah. and like the, the biggest nonsense like I see stuff and I like, I constantly am like thinking like, that's great. But like, how does that move the needle? 
Like, like, what are we doing? And and one of the things you guys never do is you never punch down. You don't ever trash talk anyone else's program. You only talk. No, about I I think it's you know? um, I think it's um, I don't know, man. Like I like how do I put this? Like I don't think you get anywhere by like talking down and pointing fingers. And I I like I really am kind of. Uh, like I stay away from people and I kind of stay away from things that like appear to be disingenuous. Like that's a big thing, man. Like I, like, okay, so I'll just give you an example. Like on uh, like the movie Goodwill Hunting, you remember where he's like in the bar and he says to the dude, he's like, ah, you'll be making my kids fries. And uh, what was it? Like Matt Damon's like, yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal. Like I always think like that. Like I want to be original. I want to be able to provide good information. And I think like getting involved in like just – nonsense and becoming a cartoon character just doesn't help the greater task like you might put some more money in your pocket but like at the end of the day it doesn't do anything to build your credibility and uh, like i would like to stand back and feel like the brand that i've created is authentic there's good information and that when people find us it's the best information on the planet well i think it is it's 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 amazing it's amazing to see how you've matured and refined and you know, and also I really appreciate that you don't try to be all things to all people in terms of getting it done in your secret squirrel program, and now I can add magic foods. So, uh, you know, you're like, hey, train in the gym, get really good, and yeah. then go play. And uh, you've been saying that from day one, and I think that always gets missed. So yeah. well, I'll tell you, Johnny, knowing you as a professional football player, watching you develop power athlete from scratch, watching you meet Kate, having kids develop this community, man, it is fun to watch. And thank you so much for talking with us today, buddy. Thank you so much, John. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWOD. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it! You better stop it! Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You better stop it. Ooh. You got it.